our scripture reading tonight, we turn to the first epistle of Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 1. The text of the sermon is found in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, and at this time we're going to read verses 1 through 12. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 is where we start. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you to those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That's astonishing, isn't it? The things that we are talking about in the scriptures about Jesus Christ are things that the angels are interested in. In this context, the Apostle Peter is bringing up the topic of whether or not Christians can physically, bodily, see Jesus Christ. In this very context, at the end of verse 7, as our text begins in verse 8, we find that there, Peter is talking about a time when the saints will actually see Jesus with their own eyes. He says, at the, in the middle of verse 7, he says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there he's talking about the second coming of Christ, his appearance, the parousia. And he talks about how it is the saints then who will receive praise and honor. 
By the way, maybe this week you didn't feel so respected at times, and maybe people even disrespected you. Well, saints, remember this, that when Christ comes, there will be public recognition and public esteem and honor for you saints. But Peter here is talking about, therefore, a a certain time in the future, a future time when we will actually, with our physical eyes, see Jesus of Nazareth. Back in the book of Job, Job celebrated that wonderful event in what is, of course, the most famous passage in the book of Job. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He says, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And then he talks about what's going to happen to his physical bodies, which includes his eyes. He says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Notice how Job emphasizes the reality of the resurrection of his body. He says, with these very eyes, I'm going to lay my eyes upon the Redeemer. Now, the Apostle Peter is bringing up the fact that now, however, we saints do not see Jesus physically, bodily, like we will. That lies in the future. Now, the other striking thing that this text raises is the whole matter of our love for Jesus Christ. I still remember back when I was a philosophy student at Calvin College, and I had a new professor, and my professor was a little concerned about me. He, he saw I was a very intellectual young man, and so one time he called me to study, and he sat me down, and he said to me, he says, but Nathan, do you love Jesus? Now, that was a very pastoral philosophy professor. He wanted to make sure that as a young man, I not only was interested in theological and philosophical matters, but that I loved the master. Peter raises that matter in our text. Now, remember, the apostle who writes this one time had a very, very uncomfortable breakfast at the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Over at Danville Prison, one of our prison artists has just painted a large scene of Peter being restored at the Sea of Galilee. And the picture shows Peter leaping out of the boat as the disciples have, had, have caught a great catch of fish. But remember what happens when Peter goes to shore. Over breakfast, Jesus starts asking him some probing questions. Peter, do you love me? even switches the verbs. He switches from the verb agapao, or agapao, to philao. It's one word that means love, sacrificial love, but another one that can have the connotation more friend love. Peter, do you love me? And Peter finally blurred out, Lord, you know that I love you. So it is that Peter who raises the matter of love Jesus. You know, what does it matter if you're smart? What does it matter if you have all kinds of gifts? What does it matter if you give great gifts of money to great causes and you don't have love for Jesus? You're like a sounding brass and you're all in vain. You're nothing. So that's an issue that is raised this evening. 
we need to ask ourselves that question. Do you, do I, love Jesus? The title of my sermon is Loving and Rejoicing with Joy in Jesus Christ. And we'll look at the meaning of that. And then secondly, the possibility of us doing that. And then third, the fruit of doing that. In our text, in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, the Apostle Peter introduces a very paradoxical situation. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. The Apostle Peter here is writing to early Christians who are scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey, places in Asia Minor. He mentions that some of them are in the northern part of what we call Turkey today. He mentions places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And writing to these saints, many of whom might have been Jewish, he says, Brothers, though you do not now see him, that is, though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Now, Peter is very emphatic here. He says, he uses like two negatives. He says, you have absolutely not seen Jesus in the past. They hadn't physically, bodily seen him. These were people who didn't live in the land of Canaan. They weren't around when Jesus carried out his public ministry. And Peter is, is saying that what we have here is certainly something that's surprising. It's paradoxical. Most of the time, we love people whom we have seen. Kids, why is it that your dad and mom love you? Well, one of the reasons they love you is because they see you. They've seen you ever since you were born, probably. And you've seen them, too, physically. And yet here, Peter says, you Christians in the early church, you have never even seen Jesus, and yet you love him. That's surprising. That's almost paradoxical. Peter here is emphasizing the past. He says, in the past, you never saw Jesus. Clearly, he's contrasting himself. Later on in this epistle, he will make the point that he was a witness of Jesus Christ. Yes, he was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. He was there almost the whole time. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. The Apostle John would, in his first epistle, talk about how even he and the other disciples had handled Jesus, handled the word of life. They even had touched him because John was writing against some Gnostic heretics who were denying the true manhood of Jesus Christ. So John emphasizes the fact that we've even handled him. But John also emphasizes that they saw Jesus. Peter saw Jesus. In fact, he was in a boat one time and Jesus performed a miracle, the catch of many fish, and Peter saw what had happened, and he saw Jesus, and he fell on his knees, and he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He had seen Jesus do astonishing miracles. Kids, don't you think that one of the most astonishing miracles in the Bible is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead? There was Lazarus. He'd been dead for days, even. And there comes Jesus to the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Peter saw that. He heard Jesus speak throughout his ministry, but he saw Jesus standing there. He saw him saying these words, and he saw Lazarus come stumbling out of the tomb. So 
Peter had seen Jesus, he had also seen displays of his divine glory. He was one of Jesus' closest three friends, and so he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so there on the Mount, he saw Jesus' face transfigured and metamorphosed and shining like the sun and his whole robe glistening. Peter saw that, and he said some dumb things, but he saw that. He saw Jesus. He saw his divine glory. The Apostle John would talk about how we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter had been there as Jesus was arrested. A whole shameful history there with his been denying Jesus. But he was present there for Good Friday, and then he was present there on Easter Sunday. And he even got a special visit on Easter Sunday after Jesus rose from the dead. And he was also present with all the other disciples when Jesus appeared in the upper room and scared the disciples and showed that he had physically risen from the dead and even ate some food to prove that. So Peter saw the resurrected Christ. But these early saints, they weren't there. They weren't around. They weren't present at the ascension of Jesus Christ. They didn't see his body physically rising into heaven. And so Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now that's, that's remarkable. Usually we only love people we've seen, people we've met in person. And the word that Peter uses here is the very strong word for love. It's that word agape. This is the love of sacrificial love. Kids, what does it mean that your dad and your mom love you? I sometimes stump my students. They have a hard time explaining what love is. Kids, what does it mean that your dad and mom love you? Well, it means lots of things. It means things like they delight in you. They have a personal affection towards you. And they're glad to see you so that when you wake up in the morning, dad and mom come and they give you a kiss good morning. And they say, I love you. But it also means that your dad and mom want to serve you. They're willing to sacrifice for you. That's what your mom did ever since you were conceived. Your mom had to carry you around in her tummy. And then you were born and she had to change your diaper. She needed to nurse you. And even now, look all your mom does for you. She prepares all those meals. She does your laundry for you. She cares for you. She teaches you God's word. All this sacrifice, all of this trouble, all of this work. Why? It's, it's because it's agape love. This is also, though, the love of intelligence and emotion. These saints have never, ever met Jesus in person, and yet they delight in him. They delight in his excellencies. They delight in his beauty. They delight in what he has done on their behalf. They celebrate him. They know about his cross. They're astounded and filled with love when they realize that he first loved them and gave himself for them on the accursed tree. They love him as they meditate on the fact that he intercedes for them at the right hand of God. They love him and how he comforts them in the midst of trials. They experience his love too. 
John G. Patton was a remarkable missionary. He was a missionary who went to the New Hebrides, which today is called Vanuatu, and there he was a missionary to the cannibals in the South Sea Islands. Kids, you know what cannibals eat for supper? Sometimes people, they would defeat their enemies, and then they would eat them. And John G. Patton almost got eaten many, many, many times. Well, he talked about how one time the measles broke out on the island. And what happened is that the cannibals were saying, it's the missionaries' fault. These Westerners came and they brought the measles and people are dying in droves because of it. So we're going to kill the missionaries and kill John G. Patton. Now, it's interesting what he later wrote about this time period. When people would come at him, that aim guns at him that were loaded, they'd come at him with knives. He said this, It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life, Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Notice that John G. Patton is saying that when he was in danger, he had sweet times when he experienced Christ's love and presence with him. Now, John G. Patton also says something that's relevant for what we're going to see next in this text, which is that he talked about how he could see him who is invisible. Yes, that is spiritual seeing. That's what we call faith. Because Peter first says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, and he's talking about in the past, he says you love him. But then he goes on to say this, he says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, the little word that jumps out to us there is that Peter says, and now In the present, he says, you aren't seeing Jesus either. And it's the same with us, isn't it? Does anyone see Jesus physically, bodily, in our church service, in our church tonight? Have any of us seen Jesus physically, bodily, throughout this week? And the answer is no. So he says, though you do not now see him, presently either. Yet, he says, the amazing and paradoxical thing is that you believe in him and also you rejoice with great joy in him, he says. So the first paradox, he says, is that even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. What an astonishing wonder our faith is. We do not perceptually with our physical eyes, see Jesus in his resurrection body. Where is Christ in his resurrection body? He is exalted at the right hand of God in heaven. When will we see Jesus physically body? Well, when we die, we will see him. Or if we would live until his second coming, then we will see him physically bodily. But now we don't see him physically What a wonder has happened in our lives. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said that you cannot even see the kingdom of God except you are born again. How is it that we can see Jesus by faith? You see, faith is sight. There is a 
believing that is seeing. How is it that we could see him? Well, we have been born again. God the Holy Spirit has blown into our life. We've experienced the wonder of the second birth. That's why we can see the kingdom. That's why we can see the king. That's why we can enter into the kingdom. Because we've been born again so that we can believe in Jesus. These, these ancient saints, these New Testament saints, they believed in Jesus. That is, they believed the truth about him. They believed that this Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the promised Messiah. They believed that he was the only begotten Son of God incarnate. They believed that he had died on the accursed tree for their sins. And they also trusted in him as their Savior. Kids, what does it mean that you believe that your dad and mom are your dad and mom? Well, it means that you believe and consider it to be true. And you, you have every legitimate reason to believe that your dad and mom are your dad and mom. But because of that, you also trust that your dad and mom will take care of you, that they'll love you, that they'll watch over you, and that even when you do something wrong, they will discipline you because they love you. Well, these ancient saints believed in Jesus and trusted in him. They saw him with the eye of faith. And that's a way of seeing Jesus that really transcends seeing him with your mere physical eyes. During Jesus' ministry, many people saw Jesus with their physical eyes and didn't believe in him. They didn't recognize the reality of who he is. But by grace, we see Jesus. So here's an astonishing reality. We have never seen Jesus physically, bodily in the past. We do not presently see him, and yet we believe in him. And then the second thing is that these saints rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, isn't that something here? Peter is really trying to communicate what those early saints were like. And when he tries to communicate what they're like, first, like we've seen, he says they loved Jesus. They delighted in Jesus. They delighted to do his will. They delighted to give praise and glory to him. Now he says they rejoice with joy. Notice how he piles words on top of each other. He could have just said you rejoice in Jesus, but that's not enough. He says you rejoice with joy. He uses a verb and he uses a noun. He's really being emphatic here, trying to describe the intense emotional response they've had to Jesus. What does it mean you're joyful? Kids, when are you truly happy? Well, there can be things like if you're about five or six years old and your birthday is coming up, wow, that's very exciting, isn't it? And you can be thrilled and excited when the day finally comes and maybe you, know, you have some friends over and you are elated, joyful, happy. Here, Peter says that these early Christians were rejoicing with joy in Jesus. They had this emotional experience of intense happiness. They have this elation, this thrill when they think about Jesus. We sang a song this evening that talked about how our response to the resurrected Jesus is one of ongoing joy and thrill. 
Now, this is all the more startling because the Apostle Peter is writing in this chapter about how these saints are going through trials. And he has to talk about how God is using their trials and their sufferings to refine their faith. So even though they're going through hard times, troubles, and yet, yet Peter says, he describes and he says, yet you are rejoicing with joy in Jesus Christ. I see that every week in prison, men who have very, very long sentences, who live in very, very rough places, and yet there is this profound joy and elation and happiness. And you see it on their face when they talk about their Heavenly Father and when they talk about Christ. The Bible is filled with all these wonderful passages that talk about the joy that believers have. Listen to uh, Psalm 16, verse 11. Passage I once spoke at at the funeral for a warden's wife. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That's why we don't grieve for our loved ones who have departed to go with Christ, because in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. We grieve, we're left behind it. We know that they are perfectly happy. John 16, 24, Jesus says, Ask that your joy may be full. So there's this talk. Jesus says, ask, ask God the Father for joy so that your joy and your elation would be full. Romans 15, verse 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And Peter says about this joy and rejoicing, he says, You are rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible. Now, that is a remarkable statement. I don't think this passage gets enough press. We like to sing songs like, When Peace Like a River, and we know that the Bible talks about how, as Christians, we can have a peace that passes all understanding. We can go home tonight, we can lay our pillows on our beds, and we can look back at our imperfections today, our, our sinfulness, and yet, guess what? We can lay our heads on our beds, and we can have this astonishing peace and tranquility. We are right with God because of Christ's sacrifice. And the Bible implies we can't even explain what that's like to an unsaved person. Peter says basically the same thing here, but here, notice, he doesn't talk about peace, but joy. He says, you early saints, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, he says. In other words, it's better experienced then communicated. It's like when you're so happy and you, you can't even communicate to other people how happy you are. You just say, I'm so happy. It defies accurate expression. Words fail us. Peter says, the joy that you have is a joy in Christ that is so powerful and so wonderful and so pure it involves such, such excitement and joy and thrill that you can't even communicate it to anyone. It's inexpressible. And then he says it's filled with glory. Yeah, it's filled with heaven. What it is, it's a foretaste of the joy we will have in the life to come. It's true that the degree of joy we will have in the life to come will way far transcend the joy we have now. Remember, the moment we die, a hundred years from now, if Christ doesn't return and we're all in glory in our souls, guess what? 
Our faces, of course, will be faces of unending happiness. Massive smiles, always. Peter says already now, you have the foretaste of that. Your joy is one that anticipates future joys, even though it's not in the same degree as in the future. It's the same kind. And so you have a foretaste, he says, of the euphoria of heaven. Now, why am I preaching on this text? What caught my eye? Why did I select this as a text to preach on? Well, as I was meditating on this text, what struck me was this. What Peter is doing here is descriptive. Let's let that sink home a moment. It's descriptive. He's describing what early Christians were like. It's not prescriptive. You know what it means to be descriptive. So, for example, if I tell you that sometimes I preach at chapels where all the men wear blue shirts and blue pants, that's descriptive. Now, it would be prescriptive if I would say to you, when you go to church, you all need to wear blue shirts and blue pants or blue dresses. Then it would be prescriptive. But that's not what we find here. Peter is merely being descriptive. He's not exhorting Christians to do anything here. All he's doing is describing them. He's saying, you early Christians, you, you, you beloved brothers, you elect exiles. He says, you've never seen Jesus, but wow, you love him. You're not seeing him right now, but you believe in him, and you have this amazing joy in him. It's all descriptive. But here's the thing, what Peter is saying is actually normative. He's actually describing for us what a genuine Christian is like. What is a genuine New Testament Christian like? Well, a genuine New Testament Christian is someone who loves Jesus. A genuine believer is someone who rejoices with joy in the Lord Christ. So it is normative. And so I have a question for you. Husbands, if your wife looks back on this last week, how would she answer this question? If I would say, wife, did your husband show love for Jesus this past week? What would she say? Or let's switch around. Let's ask the husband. Husband, this past week, you live with your wife. You're around her a lot. Did your wife rejoice with joy in Jesus Christ? Kids, covenant children are Christ's little lambs. Guess what, you little lambs? If little lambs even should love their shepherd, little lambs, do you love Jesus? 
And kids, do you delight in Jesus? Remember how the Apostle Peter was asked three times by his master, Peter, do you love me? Agape, love me. Peter, do you love me? And Jesus says, do you even phileo love me? And Peter finally bursts out. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Is that what Christ says about you too? Does Christ know that you love him? Now, what if you, you look at your life and you say, well, I, I don't seem to have any feelings of love for Jesus, and I don't really feel that I want to serve him, and I certainly haven't found any joy in him lately. I mean, I, I find more joy in, in playing around on my iPhone or Xbox. Well, then we have a problem. Because, see, we can't go this direction and say, well, well, what we find here in 1 Peter is a description of what was only normative for New Testament Christians. So New Testament Christians 2,000 years ago were a people who loved Jesus and who also rejoiced in him, but that's not something that's necessary today. Today, you just need to make some type of public profession that Jesus is your Savior, and that's all that's required. But of course, that is impossible, isn't it? Peter is describing what characterizes a genuine believer. Now, the apostle Peter here does not come with any commands, but it's not as if the Bible is not silent about commands like these sort of things. Everywhere in the Bible, we have the command, love God. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that includes then loving the Messiah too. But also the apostle Paul does command the sort of things that Peter doesn't command here. Peter says, guess what? He commands you to have the certain type of emotions. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Writing from prison. And then he repeats himself. And why do biblical writers repeat themselves? For emphasis, because they couldn't use like exclamation marks. They didn't use those. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. So the Apostle Paul, too, expects that it would be normative for us, that it would be prescriptive for us Christians, that we love Jesus and we also respond to him with joy and rejoicing. Jesus ought to be the source of joyful inner emotions when we think about him. How is it possible for us, very weak and perfect Christians, to love Jesus and delight in him as we ought? The Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that we have only a very, very small beginning of the new obedience. How is it possible for us sinners to love the Lord Christ and to delight in him? Well, the first possibility is found in our eternal election. That's the source. Peter brings that up in verse 1, as you might have noticed. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. These are a chosen people. He's a chosen according to the foreknowledge, that is, the forelove of God in eternity. How is it possible that we could love Jesus? Well, because God set his selective love upon us in eternity. He has long loved us, and so 
he then regenerates us and works in us so that we can love him back. Second, it's possible for us to love Christ and rejoice in him as God gives to us the gift of faith. Faith is a gift of God. Even Thomas, who had seen Jesus and listened to his predictions, even about his resurrection, initially did not believe. And so Jesus had to confront him and said to him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then then Peter does. And by the grace of God, he's given the gift of faith. And he says, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus spoke to the situation we're talking about tonight. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus looks forward all these centuries, 2,000 years into the future, and he pronounces us blessed to whom his spirit has given the gift of faith. Third, it's possible for us to delight in Jesus and love him as we read the sacred scriptures and meditate upon them. You know, the Bible talks about how as we meditate and gaze on Jesus, we are transformed and changed into his image. When I was in graduate school in philosophy, surrounded by atheistic professors and atheistic students, sometimes my faith would be challenged, but guess what I could do? I could go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when I read about Jesus and his ministry, I always knew that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Atheism is folly. Go to the sacred scriptures. Meditate on Jesus and his beauty. And stop filling your minds with all that waste stuff, how we waste our time, whether it's reading books that are a waste of time, whether we're watching videos that are a waste of our time. Let's take the time to meditate on the Christ revealed in the sacred scriptures. Pray. Witness. Isn't it striking that when, you know, kids, for example, how do you think your mom would feel if, you, if in the morning your mom says to you, I love you, and you never say it back again? In some sense, we enjoy our love for those around us as we express it. So talk to the Father. Talk to the Son. Isn't it astounding that we can talk to the Son of God. We can talk to Jesus of Nazareth, and he can hear us. Yes, I know that there's an economy prayer. We pray to the Father and ask him things in the name of the Son to the power of the Holy Spirit. But we can speak to all three persons of the Holy Trinity, and they hear us. Jesus of Nazareth can hear our expressions of prayer. One of my students this past week talked about how, for the first time in his life, he's teaching his little, I think, six-year-old daughter how to pray. And she first was shy about praying on the phone with him, and then she did. And then the dad said, and God can hear our prayers. And the little girl goes, wow. So confess your faith. Confess your faith to Christ and to others. You know, it's striking, isn't it, that when we share our faith with other people, that's when we can experience the heights of joy about the beauty of Christ, when we talk about Jesus and how beautiful he is and how astonishing his grace is, how great is his power that leads us to rejoice in him. And then finally, it's possible to rejoice in Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. You see, he is the joy giver. And as the joy giver, he works in our hearts so that we can rejoice in our Savior. 
that brings us to the last thing we need to talk about, which is the last little verse in our text, verse 9. The Apostle Peter has been talking about how these early saints love Jesus and rejoice in him. And as they do that, you see, they can anticipate something. And we find that something in verse 9. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here he says you can anticipate, anticipate your complete redemption. Some earlier translations had the word receiving as the verb in verse 9, but obtaining is a better translation. It's a word that was re re used to refer to people getting rewards in ancient times. But here it refers to how we will obtain something as a gift, and we will receive what is the outcome of our faith. That is what we are looking forward to, believing will happen in the future. And Peter says that is the salvation of your souls. That word salvation there is a very, very, very profound word. We can read so easily over words like that. We've heard it a thousand times. It's a word that refers to a rescue, to deliverance. So Jesus or Peter is talking about how our souls are delivered, how we're rescued. And the salvation that God has given to us have a, has a number of elements to it. Some of those are past elements. Some are present. Some are future. For example, we can say that already in the past, all the way in, the, in, in eternity, before the foundation of the world, God set his love on us. That's in the past. We can say that 2,000 years ago, Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf and in our place and suffered an atoning death on our, on our behalf and in our place. And we can say that's, that's in the past. Christ has redeemed us. We can also say this, in the past, we believers were justified. Isn't it amazing? The first time you believed in Jesus, maybe you were even a little kid, the first time you believed in him, that he was your savior, that he had taken away all of your sins, what happened? Through faith you were justified, apart from works, all on the basis of Christ's merits, but you were justified, you were pardoned. That's in the past for us believers. All of our sins, past, future, covered. And then there are some elements of our salvation that are ongoing. Because you see, our God isn't content to pardon us. No, he also wants to transform us from within. He changes our moral condition so that we love God and love one another. Why is our church a great and wonderful thing to be part of? Because God is sanctifying the members of the congregation. But this is an ongoing thing. That's why we say we only have a small beginning of the new obedience. So the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and changing us and transforming us and trying our faith. But then there's also a future salvation, a future deliverance. And this is what Peter has in mind partly, I think, too, which is the final outcome, the salvation of our souls. That is, the resurrection of our bodies from the dead are being brought into a new world. Now, when you read Peter here, and he talks about the salvation of your souls, don't think like you're reading a Greek philosopher. You see, the Greek philosophers made a big distinction between your body, bad, your soul, good. And they said the way to be redeemed is to get your good soul out of your bad material body. That's not a Christian anthropology. That's not a Christian view of man. No, the Bible says God made man good and in his own image. And your body is in itself not evil. It's a good gift from God, which we need to direct to the glory of God. 
So when Peter says the salvation of your souls, he means your salvation as a whole person. You see, the Bible teaches that we are a psychosomatic unity of body, soul, and spirit. And so here Peter talks about how the outcome of our faith is our complete redemption. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism says that Christ has purchased us body and soul. So it's okay if we're growing older. It's okay, okay if our bodies are falling apart. This past week, I was having to reapply for a passport. And I looked at my old passport. It said the color of my hair was blonde. So I said to my wife and my daughter, what color is my hair now? And you know what they told me? Gray. So I had to change it on my passport. Yes, we're getting older. We're falling apart. But the good news is we look forward to this great day, the great day of the resurrection of the body, which will be the happiest day in all of our existence when Christ returns. Maybe we will have died already and our souls will be in paradise. And if that's the case, then our souls and bodies will be reunited. Our bodies will be raised glorious and incorruptible and immortal. And then guess what will happen on that day with these very same eyes? Whether your eyes are brown or green or blue with those same eyes, you will see Jesus of Nazareth in his majesty and in his glory. So in this coming week, brothers and sisters, take time express your love to Jesus. Take time. Put, put your iPhone down. Put your computer down. Take time to rejoice in your master with great joy. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that one day we shall see him with our physical eyes and enter into a glorious new world with everlasting smiles on our faces. We pray that you would strengthen the saints in the midst of the trials of this life and the many tears that they shed as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death in a valley of tears, but lift up our eyes so that we see the gracious reward that awaits us. And help us to love our master. In Jesus' name we pray this.